moved, my family and I moved to Oklahoma City um, about, how long has it been? Two years ago, Thursday, Friday? I don't remember, one of those days. So it's been two years in the city, love the city. Um, came here to help, uh, to plant a church, help plant churches where I've been for the last two years connected with Frontline Church, uh, working to plant Adventists out in Northwest, and, uh, Northwest Oklahoma City, and met Treb, uh, actually heard about him through somebody I went to seminary with, um, one of the students there is like, you need to meet my old college pastor when you get to Oklahoma City. And, and I have this name, Treb Prater, that I'm supposed to track down and, and never did until I just bumped into him in the middle of a pastor gathering. I'm like, I need to talk to you. And so we've become good friends. Um, I've been following what's going on here at the Vine from a distance. Love it. And uh, glad to be here this morning. So let me pray for us. We're going to jump into the text and um, go from there. God, we, we do need you. As we sang, I, in... No matter how much we recognize that, we still don't recognize it as deeply as that truth is. We, we don't know how deeply we need you, and we need you to show us that. Um, whether we uh, would call ourselves a Christian or not, whether we've come to church uh, a lot or not, maybe we just stumbled into this place, maybe we we're not sure even what this whole uh, Jesus thing is. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to see our need for you. And open our hearts to see you clearly. You're the only hope of the world. We rest in you. Teach us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I want to look at um, a little statement that Jesus makes. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 23, verse 37. And we'll read this. Matthew 23, verse 37. It says this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but, uh, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a preacher reads a text like that, and most people are like, huh? What? What did he just say? Did Jesus just call himself a hen? And that didn't sound very hopeful. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to run through, uh, we're going to just move through a couple of these uh, preceding chapters, look at what Jesus is doing, because there's, uh, there's an important message here for us. No matter whether you consider yourselves a Christian, whether you consider yourself a church person, or whether you, you were looking for Starbucks and got lost, and, and everybody told you to come up here, and you're like, hey, concert, and then this guy stands up to preach, and you're like, I want out, but you feel guilty. Uh, just stay in your seats. I'll be done in a minute. doesn't matter why we're here. There's something in this text we need to hear. So here's where I want to start. Have you ever imagined what Jesus would say if he walked into Oklahoma City in the year 2013? Like, have you ever imagined, like, if Jesus just walks into downtown, wouldn't you love to listen to that conversation? To see, like, who would he talk to? Who would he be really patient with and kind to? And who would he just yell at? Okay? So if you've read the Bible at all, you'll find out he does both. Like, he's really, really kind and compassionate with some people, and then he yells a lot. We're actually going to get to some of the yelling. It's, it's fun. Um, but but the, the question is, who would he talk that way to, right? And, and if Jesus followed the model of a lot of our churches and a lot of believers and a lot of preachers that get a lot of airtime, he would, he would yell at... The, the, the people that we consider wicked, that we would label as unseemly, 
Like he would yell at the, the prostitutes. He would yell at the murderers. He'd yell at the people that, that spend too much on their coffee. He'd, he'd yell at, if he followed the, par, the paradigm of most churches, he'd yell at the Democrats. Uh, if, he, if he followed another stream, he might yell at the Republicans. Um, so he, he's going to yell at a lot of people, right? And he's going to be really kind to those of us that are in church because, hey, we love Jesus and Jesus loves us. So he's going to be really nice to us. Well, the problem is if I read the Gospels, I actually get that story flipped. The way Jesus, the people he talks really kind and patient to are the people that society has shoved, shoved off. So if you feel shoved off by this religious subculture, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense here in probably where Jesus comes to you in patience. But you know who he yells at? The church. So here's where, what, when we look at the Bible, if you consider yourself a Christian, consider yourself a part of a church, you better ears up, pay attention when he starts yelling at the religious leaders. It does not mean that we're the same, but it does mean we need to pay attention, okay? What happens, you, you know, I, I've, I've, I've wondered this, like, especially if you haven't studied the Bible much, um, <clears throat> there's probably a lot of question as to why in the world Jesus would get killed. I mean, really. Like, Jesus would be the guy, so I've got my, my high school annual, and if I open it up, it's got, like, most likely to succeed, it's got most athletic, and then in ours, I don't know about yours, in ours, we had the kindest, or the um, that would be like Jesus. Now, notice I didn't, I didn't win that category. I, I, didn't, I was not kindest. Um, but Jesus would be in that, that category. And you know what? You don't yell. You don't beat up the, the, kind, the nice kid. You just let him go do his thing. So why would somebody like Jesus, who's supposed to be so kind and compassionate, get killed? We're going to talk about it right here. Look at Matthew 21. Just a couple of chapters back. Just keep your finger there. When, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, this is the week before he dies. So this is leading right up into the fact that they're going to they're gonna kill him. He spends almost all of his time, and Matthew focuses on this, he spends almost all of his time in the temple and talking a lot about the temple. Now, to understand why this matters, you've got to understand the place of the temple in Jewish tradition and in Jewish history, understanding this. If you read the Old Testament, what you see is that the temple was this place that God had given Israel in which it would be a place where God's presence itself would dwell. It started with the tabernacle. When Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, he gives them this big tent. He says, whenever you set up camp, set this up, and that's where I will dwell. Now, he would dwell in the tent, and other people couldn't go inside. And then the temple would be a place where God would reside, but he was so holy that we couldn't even get inside. But it was, it was the symbol that God's presence was there, but we also recognized there was a separation. But this temple represented the very presence of God. It also represented the place where I would go to God to worship him. It was also the place where the sacrifices would be made. So these sacrifices would be to, for, for the forgiveness or the atonement of sins. So the Jewish practice would be you would run through these sacrifices for sins that we had committed to say, God, forgive us, and the temples where that happened. So the temple is the place where God dwells. It's the place where we worship him. It's the place of mediation and prayer, and it's the place of sacrifice and redemption. Make sense? So for the Jew, there was no access to God except through this temple. There was no way to get to God except through the priests, the sacrificial system, all centered in the temple. That has to be understood for the rest of this to make sense at all. Watch what Jesus does. Matthew 21, he walks, the first couple of verses here, it talks about the fact he comes into the city as a king. 
I want you to look at verse 12. So he has come in, these crowds have gathered because this prophet has come into town and they're worshiping him and, and, and some people are not quite sure who this guy is, what's going on, but they're, they're interested and the first thing he does is he enters the temple, verse 12, and Jesus says, enter the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. What had happened at this time was you had to make sacrifices before God to have your sins forgiven and so what the, the people around the temple thought is, hey, it'd be a really good way to make some change if we just, we didn't have the guy that comes from the city 15 miles away dragging his own lamb, we'll just let him buy one here and he can take it up and have it sacrificed, right? And so what they did was they took this place that God had established to be a place of mediation before God and man, this place of prayer, and they turned it into a mall. Sounds American. Like we turn everything into a mall. Or at least we put a mall in everything. So this this is a place of commerce, and, and Jesus walks in furious. Why? Because the temple, what's the temple supposed to be? A place where we meet God. What does it turn into? A mall. So Jesus begins to it begins to eradicate and begins to push over these tables and denounce what's going on. And here's what he's doing as he does this. He's telling the people there, this is wrong. And he's exposing the brokenness of the system. Okay? So that's the first thing he does. He goes in, he wrecks the temple. Then he leaves the temple and we get to verse 18. This is a fascinating story that for years I scratch my head and go, do what? And I'm still sometimes not sure what is going on here. Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city. So what Jesus did is he went into the temple, and then he would left the city at night and went and stayed in a town nearby because he had some friends there. And so in the morning, as he's coming back, he said he, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit come, ever come on you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And we all say in unison, what? <laughs> now, I, uh, my wife grew up in Oregon, and we lived there for about five years. And uh, I can understand Jesus' frustration at this point because uh, my father-in-law has this really nice cherry tree. And when we first moved there, it's been now about 10 years ago, we moved there. This tree produced incredible cherries. I mean, just like I'm, from, I'm, I'm here from Oklahoma where fruit all like tastes like plastic when you, when you buy it at the grocery store because it was picked like three months before it was ripe and it's ripened in a box somewhere in a warehouse so that's i'm used to that kind of fruit or like in a can with the the syrup that's not fruit and i found that out when i moved to oregon and so i would want to sit in this tree i mean i just eat 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 i mean this doesn't do good things to your your uh, your system but um cherries were phenomenal well after a couple of years that cherry tree stopped producing cherries or at least as soon as they got there they were rotten and i tell you i was angry like, I wanted to take a hatchet at that thing. I was like, no, 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 you, you, you produce such great fruit. But I would go to this tree after a couple of years, and it's like, there's leaves, and there's no chairs. So, I, okay, I can understand Jesus. But you're starting to go, like, seriously, Jesus? Like, there's got to be other trees, right? The point here is not Jesus is upset at the tree for not having fruit. He's telling a parable. He's telling us a story, and he's giving the disciples a visual. What he's saying is this, there should be fruitfulness coming out of the life of one that's been connected to God, and that should be censored in the temple. Matter of fact, everything that's going on in this passage, he's relating it back to the temple. Go on where it says this. Verse 20, it says, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled at once. How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
you will not only do uh, what has been done to this fig tree, but you will even say to this mountain, be taken up into the sea. It will happen. But whatever you ask in faith, you will receive if you have faith. And you're like, huh, what does that mean? The next verse, and then he enter, and when he entered the temple. So here's the deal. He's left the temple. He comes and he, he curses this tree. And he says something about prayer and throwing mountains into the sea, which is weird. And then he goes back into the temple. Okay? So here's the deal. What you have to understand is the biblical author is telling us that all of these things are tied together. What he is saying is this. The mount, when he says the mount be thrown in the sea, the mount he's talking about is the mount where the temple was. What he's saying is if you would say to this mountain, be dismissed and go, it would. In other words, the temple had set itself up as a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. The temple was supposed to be the place where I met God, but it was not a place where I met God. It was supposed to produce a fruit that drew me to God, but it hadn't done that. And so Jesus is now denouncing the fact. He, he first comes to the temple and says, look what you've done. You've taken a place that should be prayer, and you've turned it into a mall. And now he says, you're a tree, and you've got leaves, but you have no fruit. And there's no hope for the people if there's no fruit in the temple. Make sense? So if I'm a Jew, that's how I get to God. If I can't get to God through the temple, I'm done. Okay? Now what he begins to do, and you can read this at home. The rest of 21 through 22, he begins to teach. And he begins to tell story and parable after parable and story after story. And what he begins to do is expose the fact that the religious leaders of the day, the people that ran the temple, did not understand the things that they were talking about, and they did not really understand who God was. And so he exposes them as frauds. He exposes the foolishness of the teaching. And all of this happens. And then we get to verse or chapter 23. You hanging with me? I know it's a lot of backstory, but I didn't know how in the world to do this without covering about three chapters. Um, and then we actually talked about the Old Testament temple, and that, so that covered the Old, Old Testament. So you can tell Trev when he got back, he preached from Genesis to Matthew. And we're not done because we're going to Hebrews. So um, we may throw in Revelation just to, to, to play with him. Um, ver- chapter 23 says this, and Jesus said to the crowds, this is, this is Matthew 23, 1. Now this one, listen to me. When I said a while ago that we need to pay attention, those of us that even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you've grown up in this Bible Belt world that is Oklahoma, you, you need to pay attention to this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, so the scribes and the Pharisees are the people that run, run the religious show in Israel. They're the ones that, that conduct the temple. They, they teach the people. They're the ones that help people get to God. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but listen to this, but not what they do. And I could probably tell you that. Like, listen to a lot of preachers in Oklahoma City and do what they say, don't do what they do. Now, here's the deal. It's really easy to say that about somebody else, but the question is, what about me? So do whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And Jesus goes on and begins to denounce these leaders. And here's essentially what he says. They are supposed to be the ones that lead you to God. But don't follow them. And then he goes after, and on this, there are seven woes. And what he means by a woe is a denouncement, a judgment against them. And seven was this, was this number of perfection. Uh, in the Bible, you see this often when it says seven something. It means kind of the totality, the completion. And so basically what he does is he completely denounces the whole religious system. And he says this, these are people that claim to be a house of prayer, but they set up a mall. And they rob the people of money. 
He says, these are the people that are supposed to be fruitful in getting us to God, but they're not. Their tree's full of leaves, but there's no fruit. He says, these are the people that are supposed to be wise. They're supposed to be able to tell you how to get to God, but don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. And then he says this, they talk a good game, but they don't do anything. Don't follow them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, he says. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look really pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You scour the earth trying to find somebody and convert them and to bring them close to God. But what you end up doing is turning them into twice the son of hell that you are. Now, you want to know why Jesus got killed? Say that to the people that run the political system. Do you hear the anger? But not just better, do you, better than that, not just do you, do you hear the anger, do you understand why he's angry? Do you? Because the very way in which men and women were supposed to find God was through this temple. And these people had destroyed it. They had set up a blockade between the people and God. He's angry. Righteously angry. Justifiably angry. Now watch our verse. Chapter 23, verse 37. Now, when he speaks of Jerusalem, understand this. Jerusalem was the city that was the archetype for Israel. It was the place in which the temple dwelt. It was also the place of identity for Israel. So when he says this, he's not just talking. He's not like, um, hey, uh, hey, Enid. No, he didn't mean that. He means um, he's talking about this city identifying all of these people. And essentially, he's talking about the religious leaders in the temple. Okay? So when he says this, listen. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how, or sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathered her brood under her wings, and you would not. And here's what you hear from Jesus. Jesus is justifiably angry, but listen to this. He does not then say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, look what you've done, I'm done with you, goodbye. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. That's not what he does. What he does instead is says, how long I wanted to draw you in. In other words, the very people he's denouncing are the people he still longs to save. So Jesus is really patient with the prostitute and the murderers and the, and the wicked people. He's really patient with them. He's not so patient when he talks to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but he still wants to save them. Do you see the heart of Jesus here? The very people that are setting up a blockade between the people and God are the people he says, I still want to save you. I still want to save you, but you won't come. So now what would we expect? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. What do you expect? All right, guys, um, I, I want you to come to me, uh, and you're not doing a very good job, so we're going to set up a seminar on Tuesday. And at the seminar, we're going to get a couple guys that get it, and we're going to teach you what, the, what, what this temple should look like, and we're going we're gonna to show you why you shouldn't be selling stuff there. We're going to give you another place to set up your mall, this, and we're going to set up a prayer schedule, and I'm going to give you a second chance. Right? All right, guys, I, I know um, church, let's, let's put ourselves in the shoes a little bit. Uh, I know church that, that you, you, you may have missed the boat here. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a Bible study. We're going we're gonna to learn a little more. And we're going to show you how to do this. We're going we're gonna to help you on your timing, on, your, you, you, on this. We're going to help you understand. What you see, what you almost expect is you just going, in, all right, let's fix the mess, right? Kind of what you expect. Like, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'll, I'll forgive you for that one. You made a mistake. I'm going to help you next step. But what does he do instead? 
hear the heart. See, you have to feel this understanding of Jesus' anger, but his heart to save. If you don't understand that, none of the rest of this makes sense. Verse 38. See your house, speaking about the temple. Your house is left to you desolate. Now, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem and you hear this, what you just heard Jesus say was this. You messed it up and there's no hope. That's what you heard. And here's why. The temple was the center of the way I got access to the Father. The temple was the way that I could find forgiveness from God. And you just said, I'm going to leave it desolate. I'm going to decimate it. You just heard the woes against the religious leaders. And what it sounds like is, you screwed it up once, we're done. That's what this sounds like. But how do I square that with this heart that says, oh, Jerusalem, I long to draw you in. Do you see the tension? Do you feel this? Because if you don't understand how central the temple is to them, you're not going to understand the angst here. The people hear this and they're like, Jesus, we want to be saved. And he just said, the temple's gone. Your access to the Father, gone. Your your house of worship, gone. Your house of rest, gone. Your house of prayer, gone. Do you see that? So what's he doing? There's a reason he was killed. There's a reason he was killed. Should have turned to John 2. John here is retelling. John doesn't tell his stories in exact chronological order. He's, he's building theological themes, and so he takes stories. He's, he's not writing as a modern historian that everything has to happen. In log- he's building things in terms of theology and building systems. And so what he says here about the cleansing of the temple is the same cleansing we just heard as he's going into Jerusalem. And he says this, John 2, verse 13, And the, at the Passover the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Do you, 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 this sound familiar? We just read this. Uh, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those that sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So here's what he does. He steps into the temple and does the cleansing we just saw, right? Okay, so exposes this. Now watch what happens next. So the Jews said to him, what sign are you going to show us for you doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? You don't walk into here and start telling us what to do. Who are you? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the temple took a long time to build. And the temple being this central point for meeting God, you don't, you don't mess with the temple. So what's he talking about? There's no way you destroy, you couldn't even destroy the temple in three days, let alone rebuild it in three days. What's he talking about? The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of what? His body. When therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what that means is they didn't believe him the first time, and he wasn't talking about the physical temple, the physical temple there on the mount. He was talking about himself. So what do we just hear? 
who is the new temple? Jesus. In other words, what Jesus doesn't do is, I'm going to destroy the temple, leave it desolate, and leave you alone. That's not what he does. That's what it sounded like. That's why they killed him. But that's not what he was saying. What he said was this, the temple isn't doing its job. The temple can't do its job. We need a better temple. You're taking this thing I gave you that was supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. So what does he do instead? He kills the temple and raises himself up to replace the temple and Jesus is now the place of prayer. So Jesus, the the temple was a place in which God's glory and presence dwelt, right? That was where God dwelt. He dwelt there. And I can go to Colossians now and I can hear about the glory of God himself dwelling bodily in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is now the place where the glory of God dwells, where the presence of God dwells, where God is. The temple was supposed to be a place of forgiveness and sacrifice. And I can go to Hebrews and I can realize that Hebrews 8 and 9 that realize that Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. He's the one that brings me to the Father. He's the one that brings forgiveness. See, the temple was supposed to be this place of reconciliation between men and God. And now Jesus is the place of reconciliation between men and women with their God. In other words, the heart of Jesus, this heart that says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you in. He's saying this, you have to stop playing temple and come to me. Come to me. How many times have we told God how we're going to get to him? See, again, I don't know if you're churched or not. I don't know if a lot of this stuff makes sense or not. I don't know if you know if you believe the Bible or not. But here's the deal. All of us feel this separation from God, and we're like, how do I get to him? How How do I get to him? And so what happens is we invent a lot of ways. Become a Republican, give 10% to your church, 15% if you want, a, if you want an extra nice mansion in heaven. Um, um, be, be really nice to your pastor, um, help the lady across the street, uh, don't sleep around. We're going to give you this list of all the things you're supposed to do. And if you do all that, Jesus might just kind of let you into his kingdom. Or what we do is we feel really guilty about our sin, and so we try to make penance. We find that we hurt somebody, and so we're going to do all we can to fix that situation. And maybe God's going to overlook. Like, if I patch up the hole I made, maybe he'll, he'll forget the hole was made. See what I'm saying? He'll forget the brokenness. Maybe if, maybe, if I, maybe if I just do enough good things, it'll cover up the bad and outweigh, and Jesus is going to go, yeah, you're 51% good. Come on in. You're like, whew, good thing I did that last, last little good thing. See what I'm saying? If you vote right, if you talk right, if you make the right decisions, if you like the right people. I listen, oh my goodness. I listen to, my wife's out of town. It's the only reason this would have happened because she would have yelled at me. Um, I was flipping through the channels and I stopped on a particular channel with particular preachers. I I, I just makes me angry. And this guy, I won't name names, you all know him. Um, began to talk about the fact that, that uh, if you want to have a good life and if you want to be like God, you need to only hang around with people that are 
good like you. And you just need to hang around with the people that are going to build you up. And that's all you need to do. And so if you want to be nice, you need to hang around nice people. I thought, well, that really works really well until we start trying to reach the people that aren't nice. Like, that works until we decide we want to obey Jesus and care for the people that are in prison and care for the people that are broken and care for the people that are in addictions and care for the people that have screwed their life up. It it works until we get to that point. But what happens is we build this system. I'm going to get to God through my way. I'm going to architect my path to God. And Jesus will say, I'll have none of it. None of it. You only come to the Father through Jesus. He's the place of prayer. He's the place of presence and glory. He's the place of reconciliation. He's the place of sacrifice. He's where you find forgiveness. That's it. So it doesn't matter in this room whether you consider yourself a religious people or a religious person. It doesn't matter. There's one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. The same Jesus who has a heart wide open to the people that have even kept people from God. Even that kind of a heart presents himself as the place to meet God. He is the new temple. Turn to Hebrews 9 and we'll be done. Hebrews 9 verse 1 says this. Now even the first covenant, talking about the covenant that God made with Israel, had regulations for worship. This is what we talked about in the temple. And it had an earthly place of holiness, that is the temple. Uh, For a tent was prepared, and the first section in it was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presents. It's called the holy place. And he goes on now to describe what's in the temple, at least partly, because we have like all of Leviticus to tell us that. So in five verses he kind of summarizes. So if you want to go back to Leviticus, you can read the rest. Um... These, verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But to the second, only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year and not without taking blood. And here's what he's saying is that, that for the temple to work, what you had to have was people coming with sacrifices regularly. And the only person that could even come close to this place where God's presence actually dwelt was the high priest only once a year and only with blood. Okay, that's not much access. It's not much access. Just be honest. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not yet open as long as the first section was still standing. In other words, what he's saying is this. The Old Testament presents this temple as a way in which we met God. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is there was never quite got us there, did it? Never quite got us there. It got us close. It showed us that we needed God, that we needed sacrifice, but it never, never quite did its job. Because every single year I'm coming back with more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices. Always asking the question, did I bring enough sacrifices? Or if I sin on the way out of here and I forget to come back and make a sacrifice and I'm dead, I'm done. So there's this constant reminder of the fact that we need something, but it never quite fulfills it. It does. And so we have this place now that is supposed to function a particular way and it's not functioning there. But what it is to do is it's pointing us to our need. Verse 11. 
So it talks about all of this. It talks about the fact that the temple's not there. The temple's not what it needs to be. And it says this, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying this, the temple was never meant to actually save you. It was meant to point you to the Savior. The point of the temple all along was not actually to save you. It was to point us to our need of a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. So here's the deal. It's really easy. I'm going to speak mostly to those of you that are churched. So if you're like, yeah, I'm the guy that just found, wandered in here and I'm trying to get out, then I'm not probably talking to you right now. We can, we can talk about other things. You need Jesus too. But I want to talk to the religious people in here for a little bit. Those of you that would call yourselves Christians, been a part of a church for a while. Here's the deal. There is very, very easy for us to tell people about a way to get to God that's actually not through Jesus. It's really easy to point them to morality. It's really easy to point them to Christian fellowship. It's really easy to point them to a church and tell them to join a Bible study and think that that's going to get them to God. It's not. The only way they're going to find God is through Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask the Spirit to show us whether or not we actually live as Christ lives and whether we're really pointing people to Jesus or if we're pointing them to church. Like, I love the vine and I love Treb, and the reason I do is because he preaches the gospel and he points people to Jesus. But it's always easy for any of us to even sit under that kind of leadership and then steer off into these weird avenues of trying to point people to God through through all these systems, political, emotional, moral, relational, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. And that's not just for the people that don't know him yet. That's for all of us. In other words, this, you must, if you want to know God, press into Jesus after, before you're saved, after you're saved, during, you call yourself a Christian, press into Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. And you'll never stop that pursuit. It's not like I step in a gate and all of a sudden, oh, perfect, great. I'm pressing in, and the Spirit changes, and the Spirit transforms to the point where I begin to live like Christ lived. I begin to love like Christ loved. And now, I begin to find that I go into the places, reaching the people that the world has forgotten with the hope, pointing them to Jesus. That has to be done. And if that doesn't, if that's not done, we're guilty of being just like the Pharisees and the scribes.
series 100%. I'm glad you said that because that really ties into this whole, even what Jesus will say now in John's 14 or 17, the vine and the branches, I think it's 14, this idea that we're tied into this vine and now we begin to exude the life that he brings. It now comes through us. If it doesn't come through us, then we're going to see it. Yeah, right. And so that's what, that's the hope. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. That's where this hope is. It's in Christ, and it's in Christ working through his church to redeem this world. Because he'll stand in front of Oklahoma City and go, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City, how long I have longed to gather you under my wings. And will we be found there? Let's pray.